You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. What's up, everybody? You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of fixed blade and replaceable blade knives and game processing kits. Now, if you haven't used a replaceable blade knife before, think of this scenario. You're in the backcountry, you've just killed a mule deer or an elk or a whitetail, whatever, and it's time to break it down, get the meat off of it, and get it back to your truck. Your knife goes dull, and instead of taking time to sharpen it down again with their replaceable blade system, the only thing you really have to do is push a button, pop out the old blade, pop in the new blade, get back to work, and uh, then it just shaves time off the entire process of breaking down an animal. These blades are the sharpest and strongest replacement razor blade knives available with blades that change safely and easily at the push of a button. So if you want to find out more information about Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replacement fixed blade knives and their game processing kits, all you got to do is go to OutdoorEdge.com. And while you're there and you make decide to make a purchase, enter the discount code NATION30. N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0, and you're going to save 30% off of your purchase. OutdoorEdge.com. Woo! I had to do the Ric Flair woo to start things off because... I am so glad to be back in front of my microphone, in front of my computer, talking about hunting, talking about the outdoors, because the last week and a half have been absolute dog shit, I must say. Uh, We had a bad storm uh, roll through Iowa, just wreck hundreds and hundreds of miles worth of the state, not only in crop damage, but to home and building damage. And I'm sure you guys have all seen it on the news, but uh, it's not good. And I got my power back. I got my internet back. I got my water back. And we are somewhat back to, and I say this, this word in quotation marks, normal. We're somewhat back to uh, a normality here at the Johnson household. But, uh, I'm, I'm happy to be, be back, and I am so happy that I have a full schedule for the next couple weeks, man. I'm going to be doing my damnedest to get out and record as many episodes as possible for your listening pleasure. I really appreciate all that. Uh, you know, all the well wishes when I was posting my pictures to Instagram and, you know, showing the damage that it did to my yard and my property and and the community that I live in. If, um, you know, all all I'll say is this, 
Iowa could use some thoughts, some prayers, some good vibes. If you could just send those those good vibes our way, man, I would really appreciate it. The state would really appreciate it. If there's anything you can do to help, the state would really appreciate it. I mean, there's going to be people out there who don't have power for a long time. Their entire life has been uh, disrupted. So just a simple thought helps out a lot, and uh, I would appreciate that. But other than that, man, dude, I don't know about you guys, but I am absolutely itching now, okay? That whole week is in the past. I am itching to start shooting my bow more. And it's funny funny I say shoot my bow because my playset got knocked over. I had uh, this decorative wall and this light fixture get blown off my deck and, and trash my deck. Uh, the tree in my front yard blew over. Had to chainsaw that down. And of all the things that did not blow down on my property, my two deer targets, <laughs> my two deer targets stayed up. And I said to myself, that's a sign. I got to shoot my bow. I got to start getting ready for this upcoming season. Uh, October 1st will be here before I know it. And that's when I kick off my season with a South Dakota mule mule deer hunt. Uh, I I still got to get my food ready. I still got to get all my clothes ready. I got to get socks. I'm debating whether I need to get new boots uh, and a new sleeping bag and a new water filtration system amongst everything. But... I got I to gotta get all that organized, and uh, I feel every day I don't do that is harder. It gets harder and harder and harder to do it and maintain the network and maintain the podcast and be a dad and be a husband and all the things that actually matter. So it's, uh, dude, it's crazy out there right now, but I will make it through, and I will keep bringing you podcasts like this. And I tell you what, this is an awesome episode. We're going to be talking with Matt Butler. And a couple of years ago, I shouldn't say a couple, it's been more, hey shit, it's been over 10 years now. He wrote a book called Billy Goes Hunting. And I just saw an advertisement or something for it. Um, and we talk about this book. And it's about a kid who gets bullied and made fun of for going hunting. And then how his grandpa kind of walks him through how it's okay to be a hunter. And it's okay to uh, live this lifestyle. Uh, pretty cool uh, interview. He is a 27-year military veteran. So we talk about that. We talk about what led him to write this book, whether or not he had any uh, writing experience or you know writing any books in the past. And uh, we break all that down in today's episode. It's uh, If you have kids, this might be a really good way to educate them on what to do if people not necessarily make fun of them and bully them about hunting or tell you know the the anti-crowd but just answer questions if somebody does ask why do you hunt right uh your dad kills animals or your mom kills animals why do they do that and uh, i know that for me is one of the hardest things that i have to go through Uh, my my daughter is a nature lover she gets that i feel like she gets that from me my son i i also think he is a nature lover but in a different way he's a little bit more sensitive to um, killing and stuff but it's my job to just continue to repeat to them you know we use the this deer uh, for meat daddy goes out and he kills animals just like on a farm but this animal is wild 
and this meat is fresh and organic and and I just have to continue to educate them on everything that I do and so that way if that time ever comes they have the answers on how to answer those questions and uh, so yeah I just kind of went off there for a bit but we got an awesome episode today but we got to do a commercial first and that's vortex optics they're our title sponsor here on the uh nine finger chronicles and i'll tell you this i love the guys that work there Uh, amazing guys really easy to work with from a business standpoint i mean past that i mean that really doesn't matter to you guys but for me it does and why i like using their products and why i like working with them is because they're participants in the uh you know in the world that they market to they are hunters they are outdoorsmen they shoot guns right they love doing those things and then they market that to us the consumer and it really shows because they are in tune with who their clients are they know how to answer their clients questions because more than likely if there's been a problem in the field they have lived through it so they know how to answer those questions they have some kick-ass optics right and that's that's awesome because all the things i just mentioned to the the cherry on top is actually they have a product worth bragging about they have some kick-ass products at affordable prices and they have a bad ass warranty and it goes like this if you break it you send it in and they will replace it for you for free period so that's awesome and on top of that they just came out with a whole new lineup of spotting scopes and binoculars that you guys need to check out vortexoptics.com while you're there check out some of their apparel they have some kick-ass apparel too they have uh rangefinders, binoculars spotting scopes red dots uh rifle scopes all that stuff vortexoptics.com commercials over let's get into today's I don't even want to, it's like a BS session podcast with Matt Butler, the author of Billy Goes Hunting. Three, two, one. All right, on the phone with me today, Mr. Matt Butler. Matt, how we doing? Doing great. Uh, thanks for having me, Dan. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so you wrote a, a children's book called Billy Goes Hunting, and we're going to get into uh, this book because... I'm at, personally, I'm at a children's reading level. So this book is probably going to be not only good for, <laughs> good for me, but good for my kids as well. So um, that's, uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today is this book you wrote. But um, before we get into all that, I just want to kind of BS with you a little bit about where do you live and what do you actually do for a living? Okay. Um, currently, I live in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. Um, adjacent to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and uh, that's what I do for a living. I I spent 27 years in the military, the last 20 of those as a Green Beret, and uh, so when I retired, I I guess I I stayed with what I knew, <laughs> and and so Fort Bragg, North Carolina, being the home of Army Special Operations, uh, I stayed within that community. Uh, currently, I work as a uh, an exercise uh, support contractor. So I I help train deploying units before they go out the door before they deploy. So 
Okay. So you're uh, you're you're now civilian contracted to actually help train the military. That's correct. Okay. Yeah. And is there anything that you specialize in as far as the training that you uh, give these these uh, guys? I I generally uh, support the what we call a computer simulated uh, battle command and staff exercise. So it really, it's not so much training in terms of, you know, bullets and shooting and uh, tactical tactics, things like that. I'm, I'm more focused on the command and staff portion of it. So we, we work the battalion commander, group commanders uh, on up and their staff integration to help them uh, to be able to make tough decisions on the ground on the fly. Really. Okay. We, we really, we really, it's a variable. So it's kind of like, we call it pick your own adventure. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what they're getting into when they get into it. And we have a, a whole deck of curveballs that we can throw at them and just to see how they react and help them to understand themselves and their decision-making process a little bit better. It's a, it's a warm up really before they, they go and start seeing that for real. Yeah. So, uh, and you were in the military for 27 years, correct? That's correct. Okay. Uh -huh. Were you deployed anywhere? Did you get to see some, you know, I, I take it in that time, the answer is yes, but you've got to travel some to some unique places in the world and have seen some crazy things. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I guess that's probably an understatement. I, <laughs> uh, the only continent I didn't reach was uh, Antarctica and, um, I lost track of how many countries I've, I've always meant to sit down and try to count it out, figure out how many, but, um, several countries, uh, I, I did have the, I guess the honor I'll say of deploying six times in combat once to Iraq, uh, during the invasion, uh, during what we call OIF, um, Iraqi freedom. And then five more times to Afghanistan uh, before I finally retired. Okay. So, you know, obviously when people, when, when you say you were deployed for work and, and, you know, maybe had to do some combat, uh, were, were some of those places like really cool to visit? Not just like what you see on the movies where it's people shooting at each other and terrorists trying to bomb you and all that stuff. But, were you able to experience some of the culture outside of those uh, tense situations? Oh, absolutely, Dan. Um, you know, to be honest with you, uh, one of the, I think that there's sort of a Hollywood version of a Green Beret, which we associate with Rambo, but there's a, there's another version of that, another dimension. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia, for example, where he embeds with the, the indigenous population and leads in unconventional warfare. Uh, in fact, if you, if you've seen the movie 12 strong, that shows the 12 green berets that ride horseback into Afghanistan. Uh, that was a very dear close friend of mine. Uh, and so we are very much integrated into the cultures that we work with. Um, I, I absolutely love Africa. Uh, the, the, the people on the continent of Africa are some of the most, humble, endearing, hardworking, uh, wonderful people you'll ever meet. Uh, I, same goes for the Middle East. I spent 
uh, really a lot of time in, of my career in the Middle East and uh, getting ingrained in those cultures and learning their languages and customs. Um, and yes, like, for example, some of the, I guess, some of the things that I find, uh, I guess, personally interesting. I was in college, I was a history major, so I take a, a personal interest in being able to say that I stood in some of the places like where David stood or where um, Alexander the Great or Genghis Khan or all these different fascinating uh, characters in history and walked the same earth, walked the same terrain. Um, right before 9-11 happened, there was a, a gentleman assassinated um, in Afghanistan. Uh, he was called the, the Lion of... Um, I'm going to forget it now, uh, but I think it was the Lion of Kandahar. And uh, he defeated an entire Soviet tank uh, battalion with just a few men because he knew the terrain so well. And I was able to go to, and see that battle. Um, and that was a battle that took place, you know, many years before he was assassinated in 2001. But, you know, things like that, yes, I, I absolutely was able to take advantage of those. And in fact, kind of on the hunting and fishing side of things, uh, I worked for a general who um, I just deeply, deeply admire. And he was from Minnesota. And when we would be out visiting the different locations and fire bases and troops, he would he would look at some of those streams in Afghanistan and just say, someday, someday. And what he meant by that was hoping that there would be enough peace in Afghanistan that someday he could return with his fly pole and fish. In those <laughs> streams. So. That's awesome. Um, yep. And it's good. It's good to hear people say that, you know, it's, you know, I think there's a misconception with the military, especially, you know, obviously what the news shows us where, and even Hollywood, where a bunch of highly testosterone guys come in, kick ass and take names. But to hear you say things like, you know, yeah, we experienced the culture. We got to meet the people. It's not like it was just like the United States straight up invading a, com a country you know what i mean we're, we're there for a Correct. reason and we're there to be friends with these people as well so it's good to hear hear you say that yeah thank you so um let me ask you this then because i'm a food guy right and sure. where throughout all your travels in the military did you have a favorite region or country or continent that the food just stood out to you and you're like, man, I love, I love this, the cuisine here. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, the, the Far East. So, uh, Cambodia, Thailand, Japan, but definitely, definitely Cambodia, Thailand. The, the, the cuisine there was amazing. There was a little bit of a French influence from colonialism, of course, you have the, you know, the, the standard Thai dishes in Cambo that were variants we found in Cambodia, um, heavy seafood, um, it, it's running through it. So, yeah, just, just yeah, Cambodia, Thailand was my, probably my favorite from a culinary perspective, for sure. And then what about, like, the terrain and the culture? Was there one culture that really stood out to you? Uh, definitely Africa. Yeah. yeah. I'll tell you, I deployed to Africa with my um, Special Forces A team um, 
many times before 9-11. Um, 9-11 sort of rerouted our priorities um, from a national defense perspective. So we didn't return to Africa as much uh, for many years. But, but going to Africa, just the, the people in Africa, the terrain, the wildlife, um, you know, like it makes you think of all the stories, uh, people like Teddy Roosevelt and uh, Ernest Hemingway and, and others who just fell in love with that continent. And I can tell you, if you go to Africa, it, it, it has a, um, a mysticism and a, an appeal that, you know, it, it, really, it really is a romance to it. You just fall in love with that continent for some reason. Um, and, and that was the, no different for me. I, I really, I just love Africa. Yeah. Yeah. I hear a lot of people say that and it's, it's crazy, um, to, to hear you express yourself about walking in the footsteps or in some of the terrain, like some of these, you know, these almost mythical, uh, figures like Genghis Khan and mm -hmm. uh, Alexander the Great, because I, I can, I can, let's see, how do I put this? I know what you're talking about. Let's just say that when it comes to mm -hmm. walking in an area that ha is really rich in history. And I got that when I lived in the South and I would visit some, um, uh, uh civil war battlegrounds or even up yep. in the Northeast where it's like, Hey, you know, 200 years ago or 300 years ago, uh, a re the revolutionary war was fought in this spot. And, and you get this like, Words can't really explain the feeling. So just I'm, I'm sitting here imagining like Genghis Kong, one of the most powerful warlords of the throughout history itself. Right. And mm -hmm. and walking in there, man, I bet you that was something amazing. It really is. You know, Afghanistan is such a an interesting and diverse uh, country. It's. I think, again, you know, the media and the Hollywood sort of portray it uh, rather singularly or one-dimensionally. Um, we all sort of think, well, it must just be, you know, hot as hell and it's a desert and, you know, miserable. And that's partly true. It's, you know, it's actually um, much like a large swath of the U.S., if you could imagine it. You know, if you were to say take an area from, uh, say, Albuquerque, New Mexico, up to, you know, Montana and a little bit further west over to Nebraska, you know, how many different climates and terrains would you encounter? And that's the truth about the Af about Afghanistan. Um, so the, the people there, much the same, they, they're, but they're much more isolated. So, you know, you can actually go into certain villages and you'll see the you know, where there might be certain influences that have not, um, that have, have stayed. So for example, like you see that Mongolian influence in certain villages up in Bamiyan, for example, is uh, a province, uh, just kind of North, uh, West of Bagram, which is a major base there that we have in kind of the central North central region of Afghanistan. But in any case, yeah, the Bamian people were very, very, in fact, uh, right before 9-11 happened, uh, history buffs will recall that the Taliban started blowing up statues and erasing their culture, if that doesn't sound familiar to you. But in any case, um, 
they blew up a couple of Buddha statues that were carved into a mountain that were kind of a, an equivalent of a Mount Rushmore for them. And so, you know, yeah, those, those influences are definitely still there, you know, 2000 years later. So let me ask you this. And, you know, sometimes groups of people want help. Sometimes they don't. Were you welcome mm-hmm. everywhere that you went or did you feel welcomed? <laughs> Oh, no. Okay. Um, the, the, there were times, it, you know, I mean, that's a that's a challenging question. Um, but because, of course, this has been the longest protracted war that we've, you know, we've ever been in um, 20 years now. So you can say, yeah, at times there were. I mean, the early days of, of Afghanistan, uh, I mean, liberating that country from from the Taliban and uh, definitely. Uh, I mean, the Taliban were really, in fact, are, in fact, um, a, a very cruel, cruel uh, organization, people, um, whatever we want to call them, terrorist organization. That, I mean, uh, preventing women and children uh, from going to school, from having education, um, several atrocities, things like that. So, yes, there was a tremendous amount of um, gratitude and appreciation for the early um, liberation. Um, same in Iraq at first. Uh, in fact, I stayed in Iraq for almost a year on the first uh, after the invasion. And uh, as I left, you could sort of feel it starting to change. Um, so there, there were definitely, so I, I would say to answer that question more directly, just yes. Uh, I, there were definitely times that I was, I felt welcomed and appreciated and definitely times when you could tell that, um, you know, no matter, no amount of goodwill was going to uh, change their opinion of why you were there yeah. um, and what, and what we were trying to accomplish. Yeah. I feel you. All right. Well, I, re- I appreciate you sharing all that uh, with us because I feel like that may be some kind of a foundation into what we're going to talk about now. And that is, uh, you know, uh, this this uh, this book that that you wrote, and uh, the name of the book is Billy Goes Hunting. And the first, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you a question, and then I'm gonna back up and ask a, almost like a prequel type question to this question. But um, talk okay. to us a little bit about what the book Billy Goes Hunting is about, who it's uh, directed towards, and all that stuff. Okay, uh, there's. There's two main themes in uh, Billy Goes Hunting. Um, one is to help young children, uh, you know, five to ten is probably the demographic, help them to understand that there is nothing to be ashamed of with hunting, that, um, that, that the anti-hunting narrative is uh, propaganda and that there are logical, rational reasons why we hunt, and they can be found in the book. And then the second uh, narrative is is the idea that um, to help incorporate or to help share hunting with young folks who, you know, might be being lost to a uh, a phone and a screen generation. So right. Okay. 
And uh, is there anything anything else that this this book, uh, any underlying issues or not not necessarily issues, but uh, stories or um, principles? Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, I'll just give you the the basic overview of the narrative and the story. Uh, basically, and if I I don't know if I'm going to upend your your prequel question, but um, the, I'll kind of tell you how it got started and how in an answer to that. But, um, so one of, one of my duty stations was in DC. And, uh, so I was stationed up in DC and, you know, having been raised as a hunter and an avid hunter myself, uh, I, I wanted to hunt and, uh, it wasn't as easy as it was in some of the other places where I'd been stationed like Kansas and North Carolina. And so, uh, I, but I worked hard and found public lands and I found some private lands that would let me hunt and uh, I hunted and didn't think much of it really. Uh, and then one day, and, and I should also preface and say that, you know, I, I always incorporated my daughters. I, I raised three daughters who they're now 28, 26, and 24, but I, I always included them in everything I did. Um, that was just my I guess my mentality as a father, you know, so, you know, they, they learned carpentry, they learned uh, mechanics, they learned to drive a stick in the snow in four wheel drive, um, et cetera. But I, but I included them in my hunting as well. Um, so I didn't think much of it when um, I was hunting in DC and that was probably on me for not having thought this through and what sort of environment we lived in. Um, but one day I uh, come home from work and my, my youngest daughter is upset. She's, I mean, she's in tears. She can't be consoled. Um, so we start talking, what's going on? And come to find out she had been um, bullied, uh, just really, uh, you know, bullied, uh, taught, told by her peers at school, what an awful man I was, what an awful girl she was, what awful people we are because we're, you know, bloodthirsty killers, killing Bambi, um, doing all these horrible things, um, inhumane things, and uh, really painting us to be quite the villains. And uh, so I thought to myself, you know, first we calmed her down and got her, got her situated and thought to myself and and I gave her you know I gave her good answers then and there I tried to address it as best as I could but the thought occurred to me it's like you know what I need to do I just I just need to jump on Amazon real quick I just need to buy a book that that you know I can read to her at night bedtime that kind of reinforce this through a fictional story kind of tell the story there's got to be something out there let me go check and I check and I check and could never find it and I thought well, that's that's bizarre it's got to be something and so the thought occurred to me then well you know if it doesn't exist you know you should do it and I I sort of shelved it I mean obviously that was uh, about the time I went to Iraq for the first time so I did I shelved it for about three years and then I found myself with a uh, a slower paced uh role at that time, duty assignment in the military, so I could work on it at nights, and uh, I did, and I later wrote it um, probably in about 2000, 
2005, 2006 timeframe. Um, and shelved it again. Things got busy one more time. And then I, in about 2008 is when I decided to uh, publish it for the first time. And I probably like every first time author, um, you know, I have a stack of rejection letters, you know, <laughs> a couple inches deep. Um, children's, children's publishers wanted nothing to do with it because it was a hunting book and hunting publishers wanted nothing to do with it because it was a children's book. So, <laughs> uh, no one, no one quite saw the unique, you know, niche that I saw and thought that it was value added. So I ended up uh, self publishing it the first time back in about 2008, we just did one initial run and it was very successful. It was mostly picked up by, um, hunting like independent mom and pop hunting stores. Um, we sold out and then that's really when like the war and, and my role as a green beret sort of kicked into high gear. And, uh, I really, uh, didn't have any time for it at that point. So it wasn't until, uh, I retired and then also with COVID and other things, I found some time on my hands. And I decided, you know what? I need to put my energy back into this. And, and that's one caveat that I want to make sure, if you don't mind me mentioning, Dan, that I, I, I want everybody to know that I, this is not, um, you know, uh, I'm a huge moneymaker for me. In fact, I probably make about 50 cents an hour uh, on this. If I average it out, what this is to me is this is about saving hunting, growing hunting, and giving our children the the facts and the wherewithal to be able to stand up to bullies and anti-hunters uh, when it comes to being confronted by someone like the way my daughter was. Um, so uh, so I, I decided to republish it, and then really it's just been in the past uh, several months here that I've really started to engage in social media, Facebook, Instagram, and whatnot with the podcast and doing what I can to, to promote and get the book out there for, for young readers. So <laughs> what I hear when you say that is you created this book almost just for your daughter or, or your daughters in a way to help explain to them that what you do and what they do is okay. Is, does that sound That's about right? That, yep, that was, that was. That was the purpose. I wanted to be able to take her through this story and the story really is, and I, I know I sort of played the gender card there because even though it happened to my daughter, I, you know, I, I picked a boy, a young boy named Billy, fictional character. And basically it's the story that I think most of us can identify where there's a, a grandfather in the picture that lives on a farm, um, you know, out in the rural community. And then there's a, a father who moved to the suburbs with his family uh, probably for job or for professional reasons. So Billy's kind of, you know, he spends a lot of his time at the farm, but he grows up in the suburbs. So he's got a little bit, you know, he's got one foot sort of in each community, so to speak. And he, he gets those questions one day at school. Why do you hunt? Why are you doing this? Don't you have any idea what, what you're doing? Um, how could you be so cruel? And so what had always been sort of a, uh, an exciting time for him, the fall and going back, to his grandfather's farm and, and hunting as a family. Now he sort of approaches it with a little bit of anxiety because he's, he's feeling that conflict. And um, so he gets out there and he's hunting with his grandfather and he basically says, you know, grandpa, why, why do we do this? 
why why do we hunt and grandfather you know sort of looks at him like you know like puzzled sort of the way i did like you know, like i'm i must have failed you for not having told you so let me walk you through it and then he basically walks billy through the ethical and environmental and practical reasons why hunting is so valuable to the environment to the to the animals to our societies to feeding our families to all those um, various aspects yeah man very interesting now before you wrote this book did you have any experience in writing or children's books or i guess writing in general uh no i i didn't i i've um this is this was my first book this was my first children's book although i am writing a second one a companion to it uh, which i'll mention in just a moment and um since then i've i've actually been published i i in a couple different articles uh i wrote an article for bowhunter magazine um back in ooh, probably 2004 2005 so about the same time frame, and then um, professional journals for special operations have had a couple articles published. So, um, not an extensive background in writing, no. So I'm probably not up for the Pulitzer. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. So you started going. You started going through. You know, it's like okay. I I think I want to write a book. And, you know, the process, it sounds like it took a long time uh, from the time that the you got the idea to the time it was, I guess, if we want to say published, uh, officially published. How did you go about putting together the storyline, coming up with the ideas and, you know, really getting to that point where the book actually meant something? Well, that's a that's a great question. Um, I really think a lot of it was was trial and error and persistence. So the trial and error part, um, you know, I, I, like you like you asked. I mean, no, I didn't have any clue what I was doing. I didn't. I, I just honestly, I just believed it and still do. I just I really simply believe in the idea that, you know, we we can take our kids hunting. We can buy them, you know, small child size. 22s and we can buy them small bows and we can we can get them outfitted in camo and stuff like that but i think if they don't really understand the narrative if they don't really know how to speak to the anti-hunting crowd and defend it even if they they never defend it maybe they don't just don't want to engage in it but at least they have that resolve and that knowledge in the back of their mind so that the the anti-message doesn't sink in with them that that would that's the passion that's why but that's what kept me going it was just this idea that, that this was valuable so i would i would trial and error i literally my my wife was my was my my editor at the time i'm a, you know I'd, I'd i'd write an outline and i'd give it to her and she'd kick it back and then you know i'd amend it and i'd back and forth and back and forth and we went from an outline to um to an actual children's book and so or to you know to an actual text um and what i you know i literally just started you know as i was reading books to my kids at night uh, i was sort of reading them with two 
eyes, right? I was reading to my child and sounding out the words, but in the back of my mind, I was sitting there looking and taking notes, and I probably took a few copies of the book with me at the end of, after I tucked them in and went into the living room and sat down and made marks and notations and said, so I could sort of figure out what the, what the parameters were, what I liked, what I didn't like. And that was my trial, um, trial and error period. The other part was just, was just pure persistence. Um, like I said, it, you know, it, boy, it probably took me, you know, five, six years to go from, um, having that idea from her experience to finally having a, a copy, a hard copy of the book in my hand, you know, that I could, that I could flip through the pages and give to my kids and, you know, read to them. So it was, it, it was definitely some good old fashioned green Bereaism there where you just refused to quit. Um, <laughs> that, that just kept me going. So what were uh, your daughters, the, the people who read it initially, what was their, their reaction uh, to the first couple copies? Oh, it was, it was great. It was very overwhelming. I, I, I mean, obviously I think that my daughters were quite uh, biased in their, um, in their reviews <laughs> uh, as, as their father. I think that they probably uh, gave me a much higher review than, than they normally would have, but, but they loved it. They loved the book. They, they loved the idea and, you know, they, they agree completely uh, with the, the principles. The principles in there are sound, um, and so it 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 accomplished its purpose there. Um, and frankly, I I, I don't think I don't think I was completely one hundred percent in terms of positive reviews. But you know we, you know the book's been out for a while. Like I said, we did one publishing, and then it, we're into our second edition now. Um, but those first initial reviews were all. Um, uh, very well received, uh, had school teachers and, um, wildlife officials and celebrities and two, uh, that you'll see on the back covers. One's Mark, uh, Mark Kaiser and, uh, Ted Nugent both endorsed the book and wrote a review for me. So, um, overall, I think it was, uh, a highly favorable reception. Um, I even had a couple of anti hunting, folks try to you know bait me into a to a conversation uh, one was in germany one was in australia uh I, I knew that anybody calling to interview me from germany and australia uh, probably uh, weren't doing it to be supportive so i sort of had a half a mind what i was getting into when i accepted but um it was it, it sort of was further proof to me that we were onto something and that we had sound principles because they wanted to argue, you know, the, the, the same worn out narrative about why hunting is wrong and uh, should be eliminated. And when confronted with facts and logic and, and reason, they just sort of backed down and had very little to say after that. So switch, they almost gave up and switched to another attack point. Well, they, they actually just kind of, it was almost like the, the wind just came out of their cells and the, and the interview just sort of just floundered, you know. I mean, they, they weren't really engaging. They didn't have a whole lot more questions, and they were just trying to struggle to fill the time now because they didn't know what else to say because they really <laughs> thought that they, you know, like they were going to have me on the defensive, you know, the whole time up against the ropes. And I just, you know, I just kind of calmly said, well, you know, like 
like so for example you know the they talk about you know um i guess probably one of the more popular narratives is the idea that uh trophy hunting in africa you know is so horrible and and uh you know obviously that's that's not about you know game that's not about feeding your family and uh, and that, like okay yeah you're 100 percent accurate but let's let's talk about what happens if we eliminate it like the, the money that someone spends to hunt an elephant for example goes so far to protecting you know thousands of other elephants right anti-poaching fences uh reimbursing farmers who would otherwise just kill the elephant and let it just, you know, rot in the sun. Uh, and, 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 oh, by the way, you're right. The only animals that they hunt are the extremely large ones with tusks, which also happen to be those animals that have surpassed their genetic prime and are close to dying of natural causes anyway. But if we back up for a second and harvest them right before they die, or in their latter years, then they serve a purpose to the entire herd right. versus just dying a natural death off in the bush. So right. once once you say that to them, they, they just sort of don't know what to say because they've, they've never thought of that. Yeah, yeah. So was this, was there always a plan for you to have this book published or was this just, hey, I'm going to write a book and kind of see where it goes? Or was there always an end game to it? No, no, it was it was the first. It was I'm going to write a book for my daughters um, because there, there wasn't one, and I wanted to be able to explain to them. Uh, I don't know why I got fixated on writing it in a book. I guess I could have just reinforced it over and over through the you know through the discussions, conversations with them. But uh, somehow I got fixated on the idea that uh, a book would be the right medium to sort of convey that. Um, message in a in a non-threatening and you know entertaining mildly entertaining fashion so but it was it was meant for my for me for my kids you know I guess my loved ones if you they didn't really have sort of a an end game it was definitely I'm going to do this for my daughter and daughters and then let's see where it goes okay so once you actually got it published and you started getting reviews on it did did it uh, instantly spark a, hey, I need to do another one of these? Or did it take several years for you to say, hey, I, I need to follow up with another book? Uh, no, it, it, was, um, it was probably just overcome by events. I just simply... I did that first publication and I was happy with it and we sold out. We felt really good about that. And I think it was always in the back of my head, but at the same time I was, you know, I was deploying practically, you know, once a year for three, six months a year, maybe sometimes up to 12 months. Um, I was, I was preoccupied obviously with, with the, the war effort and, with being a Green Beret, that's that's no small career obligation. So I I, I just um, I think it was in the back of my mind always, but I just didn't um, ever do anything about it until I retired. And and um, so like you said, 
the, you know, the idea of a second book, um, I started thinking about it. And really, I think, again, a lot of this kind of comes from um, our, where we are as a society and, you know, looking around and, and seeing the problems I, I would, the, the book I'm writing right now, the follow-up, the, I guess the sequel will be uh, uh, Billy's first rifle. So, you know, uh, Billy will have matured a couple of years. He'll be 12 and it's time to get Billy his, you know, his first rifle and, and same thing, you know, he's probably going to, we're going to kind of follow a similar pattern where he's getting a whole bunch of uh, hate and anger over the fact that, you know, Billy's family owns guns. And again, we're going to just kind of confront the, the bullies and the antis with some facts and some logic and some reason and let, help them to see why um, that doesn't make Billy a, a murderer or, or a criminal or a villain in any way. Yeah. So uh, with you having three girls and right, you've, you've mm-hmm. had this boy character and all I could do is make assumptions. Like obviously more men and males hunt than females, which, you know, from a, a, a book selling standpoint would be, a, a good move uh, was that was that one of the reasons why you decided to make the main character uh, a boy it was that that was the reason i i kind of joke around with my daughter about that she doesn't have any heartburn over the fact that it's billy goes hunting and not rachel goes hunting um uh she probably doesn't want the limelight but um it was it was just the idea that um it, it is right now more of a male-dominated uh, industry hobby uh, passion. So uh, I just kept it um, simple for those reasons. Yeah. Uh, but you know, thankfully, women are the largest growing demographic in hunting, and uh, and I think that's great. Uh, part of part of me being a, an advocate for growing hunting and uh, whatnot is is knowing more about hunting numbers than I ever thought I would. <laughs> in terms of demographics and growth and loss and all those things. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was just a matter of convenience, I guess. Okay. Do you have any plans in the future to, I don't know, make a, uh, a book about, uh, Stacy goes hunting or whatever, uh, a girl's name is and have uh, the main character be, uh, a mother or a daughter. You know, I, I do. In fact, uh, one of the things that I'm also currently involved in is reaching out to several of the nonprofits. I had no idea how many there were. Um, I talked to a, a, a game officer in South Carolina recently who said there's over 200 of these nonprofit organizations who work um, to introduce hunting to uh, young kids. And one of those, or, or excuse me, one uh, slice of those, there's several that do it, but they focus on the single mom aspect, which I think is a terrific, um, um, I, uh, I guess a terrific avenue. Um, the idea, like I, I just love the idea that um, what hunting could do to a single mom, whether a single mom of daughters or a single mom of, of boys or, or vice versa, because you know you're putting food on your table. You're spending quality time, you're teaching respect for animals, you're outdoors, you're just teaching so much and accomplishing so much uh, that as a single parent that um, I just think hunting would be a a terrific um, 
method for, for all of that. And so, yeah, I think there, there could be a, a follow-up there, especially with these nonprofits. Yeah. So putting the book aside for a second, you know, I, I don't want you to answer this question by saying, go buy the book. But what I do want to ask, <laughs> what I do want to ask is for a parent out there who has maybe had this experience where a kid was bullied or he was made fun of because he comes from a hunting family or a, you know, kids may not be bullying him or her, but just asking questions. What advice would you give to a parent to handle those situations? A couple of things. First of all, I would say it's not a one-time conversation. You, You know, you don't, Questions of that nature are going to be deep. They're going to be, you know, it probably takes some vulnerability on your child's part to, to be able to get that up and muster them because they might be, you know, they're probably, even though they're young, they're, they're intuitive, right? So they know that, wow, a question like this is brushing up against dad's favorite pastime. Um, I'm not sure I want to answer this. So if they do ask that or not sure they want to ask that. And if they do ask it, I think it's critical to keep in mind like, wow, like, okay, my, my son or my daughter, my child's not seeing the value in this. He's not seeing it in the same light I do. And I got to respect that he's even asking me these questions, that he was brave enough to do that, he or she. Um, so, so that's, a, I guess, the first recommendation. The second recommendation is um, kind of a, an extension of that. Don't just say, well, here's why we hunt, A, B, C, D. Okay, now, now don't, you know don't bother me with this again. You know, like don't brush it off. If it's important enough for them to ask, it's because they're trying to make sense of it in their world and they want to, you know, they want to know. They're not trying to um, go against it so much as they're trying to learn and understand. They're trying to gain that deep understanding. And so that takes time. That's not a, a, you know, a five minute conversation and done, you know, what we would say in the army fire and forget that's a, you know, we need to, that's more of a, a, a plant that we need to nurture and grow. So, you know, we, we might have to have that conversation dozens and dozens of times. All right. Um, yeah. The other thing I'll just say last is just that, you know, I would, I would keep the information as factual as possible. Um, if you, if you read anything that PETA says, it's all emotion based. It's all, you know, they use very emotional-based, inflammatory language to appeal to emotion, and, and it works with a certain crowd. But I would say that more powerful than emotion is, is the fact. So just, you know, re- remain factual, remain unemotional, just lay it out. I think our children are smart enough to figure out, you know, the value of truth and fact. Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, people, no matter what age they are, if they see the facts and those facts are reinforced with just positive energy, then I think a kid would undoubtedly, you know, whether not, you know, not necessarily just hunting anything that's, you know, where Mm -hmm. there's facts involved and, um, you know, a decision or two groups of people arguing over thing, you know, show the facts, show it in a positive light. And there you go. And I, I think it would be absolutely easy for a kid who, you know, or kids who are mostly innocent to gravitate towards this 
factual positive energy, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Versus the, the, the more negative approach, which is usually what the anti-crowd takes is a, a very negative energy about, about things. Yeah. You're a bad person because of this type of deal. Well, mm -hmm. you know, that's an yep. opinion. So, well, you know, Matt, I, I really appreciate you coming on and chatting with us today about this book. I strongly suggest, even though I, I'll be honest with you, I, uh, I sat down and I was going to get it and I was going to take a look at it and read it. But then like all the storms came through last week and knocked all the power out here in Iowa and uh, I didn't get to it, but I'm definitely going to get to it and I'm definitely going to share that uh, with my kids. So uh, I appreciate your time today and uh, where can people find your book, Billy Goes Hunting? Uh, right now it's, it's only on Kindle. Um, I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing. Like I say, like a lot of this is, I'm still, I'm still the same old Matt. So I'm, I'm persevering with <laughs> stick to itiveness and, and trial and error. So I may learn down the road that that was maybe a bad decision, but for now I'm, I'm on Kindle and, and maybe Dan, that was sort of a blessing in disguise. I don't know if you are an e-reader or if you're a hard cup, hard copy guy, but, um, if you wait about a week, will be out in paperback as well. I'm just sort of finishing up with Kindle, so you'll have two two versions there to choose from. Perfect, perfect. Matt, appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks for having me. And there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, another episode of the Nine Finger Chronicles brought to you by Vortex Optics in the books. Man, I am so happy that you guys take time out of your day and listen to this. Uh, podcast man really appreciate it huge shout out to matt for taking time out of his day to talk to us about his book billy goes hunting huge shout out to all the partners of the nine finger chronicles podcast vortex optics the average conservationist lone wolf portable tree stands wasp broadheads ozonics scent elimination and the average conservationist please go out and support the companies that support this podcast it means a lot. Not only are all those companies badass, but uh, they help make this possible. So there's that. Instagram, Facebook, please support, uh, show your support through there, whether it's on the Sportsman's Nation or the Nine Finger Chronicles. Lots of awesome content coming down the pipe, so be aware of that. If you missed an episode, you can go to iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Subscribe to the Nine Finger Chronicles. Go to the Sportsman's Nation website. Check it out. Have a good rest of your week. Have a good weekend. Have a good life. Spread love, not hate. All these good things, man. I'm just feeling really positive lately. And uh, I want to send that good, those good vibes out to you, man. So enjoy. And we'll talk to you when we talk to you.